This is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today are Vinya Logan. Hello, my name is Vinya. I am a founder of SocialBeconstructed.online, a community-centered marketing platform that builds the social currency metric system which I believe is now called Social Listening in Chaos. Indeed it is. And Armstrong Frondjem. Hi, Armstrong Frondjem. And my research, uh, I'm a researcher in the space of ecosystem health or measuring ecosystem health. So Chaos is really a perfect community for me where I also uh, collaborate with the Evolution team, the Evolution Working Group, and besides this other aspect I try to bridge about the social aspect in artificial intelligence to bring that human value into the engineering system. Awesome. Great to have you. And myself, Georg Link. Hi, everyone. It's good to be back with you. I'm a co-founder of the Chaos Project and I work at Biturgia as the director of sales. I also am the lead of the IEEE SA Open and I teach open source communities at Brandeis University. And today I am super excited that we have as our guest Karina Zona from Pants Build. And we talked and I was just amazed with the detailed depth knowledge that she has of the community and how she arrived there through many different means. So I'm super excited to hear more about that. Karina, maybe you can give us a little more of your background. Yeah. So I am currently the head of developer relations for Toolchain, which is the lead sponsor of Pants Build Open Source Project. And it is the principal focus of our activities. We're also building a SaaS that essentially adds value on top of Pants, and that's currently in private beta. So we do some work on that, but my work specifically is focused solely on the Pants Open Source Project and building the open source community around it. I've been in Dev Relations for a decade or so. Some of my previous work has been for Ruby Together, for Rackspace. I worked on their Zero VM project. I've also been an organizer for various women in tech programs, including Rails Bridge, Women Who Code. And I'm also the founder of Callback Women, which was a multi-year project to increase gender diversity at the podium of professional tech conferences for developers. So not just getting more women as speakers, but also other underrepresented genders, making sure that transgender people, gender non-binary people also were having their needs met and able to be represented at the podium. And that was something that I was very passionate about and spent a lot of years on. So altogether, I've been in the field for a couple decades. But really the past decade, I've spent a lot of time on trying to increase gender diversity in our industry as a side project on top of dev relations. And the two are really, I think, very closely related and complementary. When you care about tech community, 
you care about everybody in the community being able to have a voice and getting to benefit from their insights, their knowledge, their perspectives. And anytime that we fail to do a good job of being inclusive, we're alienating people and we're also losing out ourselves. So I think it's really a win-win when we can be doing a better job at all kinds of diversity. My focus has been a lot on gender diversity, but there's certainly a lot of other ways in which we have serious representation and issues, as well as various isms and discrimination. So we have a lot of work to do, and I find it really exciting to be able to contribute to some of those things in whatever time I have available outside of my job, which these days, leading DevRel for a startup and an open source project doesn't leave me tons and tons of spare time, but it remains a passion. Thank you so much. I know there's a lot here. And I really appreciate you coming on and talking with us about your work that you're doing now. But just from the conversation we've had so far, I, I can really see the, how you care about everyone in the community. And that is something in the chaos community that we always talk about, that as we are trying to understand the health of an open source community and trying to use metrics, how do we make sure that we are not accidentally biasing ourselves. You know, it's easy to look at the commit log and then we are ignoring everyone who is not contributing in the commit log. So there's a lot there and I don't, it, I don't know where I was going with that. I agree with you that it's a constant challenge and I don't have on a lot of those things great answers because data is very self-reinforcing. I mean, trying to get objective data um, about people who aren't already in your community is extremely difficult. And so it's very easy to think that the people who are here now represent the entire universe of people who would be participating in your community. And the fact is those things are always going to be worlds apart. First of all, because the tech community itself is woefully lacking in diversity that reflects the real world. So anytime we even manage to be as representative as the tech community, we're not as representative as the real world and the products that we're trying to develop to serve the real world. So even our best efforts are still going to be very filtered, very biased. And that's a challenge that we can just keep working away at trying to find solutions to. But I certainly don't have a big insight to add. Yeah. And, and speaking of someone like I began my career with rescue.net, which is basically a community specifically for LGBT individuals who can't identify outright people who are closeted, stealth, et cetera. And it's incredibly difficult living in a world where software metrics and representation is shown via the behaviors that we perform online. It's incredibly difficult to deal with the fact that dark data applies first and foremost to people's identities and what they don't want to say. Such a hard problem. And data gathering itself often introduces a lot of unintended bias and sometimes intended bias for reasons like, you know, our marketing agenda or what we need to present to our board or to our shareholders or whatever. We need the numbers to lean in such a direction or need to answer a question a certain way, whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why intentionally or unintentionally the way we gather data also results in these biases. And so, yes, there's data constantly being collected about us. If we were given a chance to look at it, I think all of us would constantly be like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's, 
10 years ago for five minutes, sure, that was right. But otherwise, you know, it is a problem that we're relying on data that we believe is objective, but is still sub- reflecting our subjective understanding of how to ask questions. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask, how do you typically approach conversations like that, where people are saying we need to be making data-driven decisions, but those data-driven decisions are also kind of, hey, you need to be aware that we don't have the data in this spot. How do you tend to approach that conversation with someone so metrics-focused? Yeah, this is definitely conversations that I've had many times. It comes up a lot when you're working with engineers because engineering in general is a field full of people who feel very strongly that we're data-driven, we're metric-driven, where we look for objectivity and numbers feel very objective or things that can fit in a checkbox versus a text field feel more objective. And so it makes people uneasy to make decisions that are based on data that's further away from, say, rigid answers things that can be tabulated well in a spreadsheet. I mean, a lot of times at some point someone brings up, but what do we do about a spreadsheet? How are we going to crunch that? And I don't have a stock answer for you on that. But for instance, one of my favorite classes in college and again in grad school was research methods. And one of the things you learn in research methods is that there's two data types, essentially. There's qualitative and there's quantitative. And a lot of times qualitative is used as a preliminary for gathering quantitative data as a way to first you need to understand the question itself and the universe of potential answers out there. If you start immediately by jumping to here's what we think are appropriate answers without actually talking to people first to hear what their universe answers are, then you have lost the opportunity to be surprised. And it may be that you shut out a whole bunch of people from even being able to give you an honest answer. That's a real problem or it becomes biased because they tried to pick the closest thing to accurate, but it really wasn't. It was next door to accurate, but it wasn't actionably accurate. You're being misled and not intentionally. You're being misled by your own poor data gathering. And so qualitative research is really important for being able to identify what's a good question. And once we get to the point of pre-filling answers that we want to narrow things down to, how do we do that in such a way that we don't end up being the cause of our own, you know, leading ourselves down the wrong path or missing out on a really good answer because we didn't provide a venue for it because we communicated in some way we don't want to hear that or how many people stopped answering because they felt like, okay, you don't actually want to hear from me. You don't envision me. All of those things are reasons why it's worth spending a lot of time. So we have right now in Pants Community two, what we now envision as annual surveys. One is our annual roadmap survey, which we are conducting right now. And that's a two-part process. The first is essentially much more open-ended. It's the qualitative side. Just tell us as an individual, what do you want? What do you think we should be working on? Give us your suggestions. Give us your ideas. And we do a week of running that. And then the second part is then the community gets to vote on what our priorities. So we get a sense of where is the collective consciousness, you know, showing the most interest? How do we set priorities among all of these great ideas? But the important part is that if the ideas came just from the maintainers, we would miss out on so much understanding of the community and what's important to them. What we know really well is how to build software. What we don't know really well is how to use it to apply 
your problems, what your use cases are, what your code base is like, what your internal office politics are like, what the communication among your teams are like, what languages you're using, what tools you're choosing to use within those languages, all that kind of stuff. We need answers from the community because we are not capable of making those choices without that input. We would make a lot of wrong choices if we did that in a vacuum. Could you describe the pants community and what it is for the audience, for the listeners to get better background on who are these people that we are talking about? What is the project about? Sure. So pants started over a decade ago as a hack week project at Twitter. It was created by John Soroyce, who named it pants because it was an implementation essentially of ant build system using Python. And it created so many ant files or ant like files that it was pants pants. There's since been a sort of rumor going around that it's related somehow to clothing, jeans, et cetera. But no, it really was Python and plural. And so that's the kind of origin story. And what happened was Benji Weinberger, who was then at, I believe, Foursquare, heard about this project and was dealing with some similar problems with a mono reap, which is what this tool was for, and was like, hey, could I work on that with you? Because we could use this too. And so the two of them became maintainers of it. Eventually, Twitter open sourced it. It became a project that was being very actively developed and used at Twitter, Foursquare, Square, and a bunch of other companies, Pinterest. That's a different era. That's all pants one. And then it came to a stopping point where Twitter felt like we've hit a wall with what we want to do with pants, which is now called pants one, pants version one. And we think Basil can meet our needs better. And so they decided to leave it. But at that point, John and Benji had already started Toolchain, the company that I mentioned earlier. And they and others at Twitter and other companies basically had been still working on pants for years. We're like, we want to keep maintaining this thing. And so Toolchain took over as the lead sponsor. Most of Toolchain's employees work full-time on pants. A few work part-time on pants. But essentially, Toolchain is a small startup that has spent millions of dollars of engineering hours for the past three years on making pants as good as it possibly can be. And most importantly, reinventing it from scratch. So they rewrote the code base entirely from scratch, redesigned it, whole new vision using a combination of Python and Rust. So Python for essentially accessibility and Rust for performance. And that launched in the fall of 2020. I came into the company in January of 2021. So right after that launch, and essentially my work has been on building the community for Pants 2, that whole new system that shares a name and a team, but otherwise has very little shared history with the original Pants 1. They share some common philosophy, but as far as engineering design, they're really distinctively different. And as far as features and languages supported, et cetera, very different. We now support Python, Go, Java, Scala, and Shell, and are looking on actively this year, adding more languages to that. So that's the long story on what the heck is Pants. And because it has that more than 10-year history, it's had a thriving community all along, but because it hadn't had dedicated DevRel resources before 
a year ago, it hadn't been growing at the rate that it really should be considering the value that it presents. It's a really sophisticated modern build system. And particularly if you're a Python user, you really want to take a look at this. But it just didn't have essentially an organization devoted to really advocating for it and for getting to really know its community because for so much of its lifetime, its development was run by what is Twitter's needs? Are Twitter's, you know, Twitter's problems being solved? Great. Are Foursquare's problems being solved? Great. That was more or less the driver for growth. And so community wasn't a huge part of the thought process there. I don't want to speak too much to that because I wasn't there during that period, but that was what was so different about that period of time that now Pants 2 is very much about how do we serve the needs of a lot of communities? How do we serve a lot of use cases? How do we understand various needs so that it's not being driven, first of all, by say meeting tool chains needs, but by meeting as many people as possible where they are and making it as easy as possible to use good tools to scale your code base safely and well. Obviously in our industry, that's really important. I just have a concern. So Ant2 is community focused. Is that correct? Correct. Now who is this community? Uh, Any user? Is it the internal developers, engineers? Sure. So it's primarily users. We have obviously an active GitHub repo with a lot of activity there. And then we also have a Slack community, a lot of activity there. And those are the two primary gathering points for people who are primarily users. Typically what we have is that in a large organization, you have some sort of department like developer productivity or build engineering, something where a handful of engineers are devoted to making sure the build goes well. So they essentially are standing in for a whole bunch of other engineers. And so we'll get for one company using it for a whole lot of seats, we'll have one person in our community who's essentially that liaison, the person who's in charge of the pants install and who does whatever internal training needs to happen when there's tech support that they themselves can't deal with, they come to us if they want to do custom build scripts and they you know, need some help with interpreting the docs, they come to us. So the community is sort of two layers. There's the layer that we get to directly interact with in places like Slack and GitHub. And then there's the layer that we're removed from that is all of those colleagues that are essentially consumers of the activity that happens in the Slack through whatever liaison or handful of people. Rippling is a great example of this. They're essentially fintech for HR. They do things like handling paychecks and insurance processing, stuff like that. They had been using pants for seven or eight months before we found out that the one person we'd been dealing with the whole time was responsible for 200 seat install of pants. So it's interesting because we want to hear more from those individuals because certainly there's one person who can tell us a lot about the technical implementation of pants, but they don't have the firsthand knowledge of what is your experience using this as an engineer? Is there anything that you wish existed here or that we could fine tune for you? What can we do for you, the end user? So there's that administrative person, but sometimes we don't get to have the contact that would be nice to have with the end user. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, The open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing. 
Facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the Sustain community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. So we're mentioning on intentional bias, and we know the programming language discussion is as old as computer science. When people will tell you if you program in C, you are a gig, you program in this other kind of language, like let's say, uh, it's just an example, one other language, you might just be a middle person, another kind is just like, oh no, you are just a beginner. And this brings in bias immediately in the community. So I don't know if people who are Rust performance, since Rust is for performance in your community, sees themselves as the nerds and Python people as, well, they are just supporting us. Is this kind of community feasible within your community? I'm going to answer this as if it were a couple of different questions, because first I should make a clarification. So primarily Pants Build as an open source project is written in Python. The core engine is written in Rust to make the engine perform as fast as possible, but you're not using Rust as an end user. That's strictly if you're contributing to Pants core itself, you may or may not interact with the Rust code. We would love to at some point support Rust because we're big Rust fans but we don't have Rust users per se right now. We do support Python. It was the first language that we gave first class support to with Pants 2. And so a lot of the initial design decisions are very much biased around, and I think in a really good way, because two language communities that I really respect for their choices about community values and how to treat people are Python and Rust. And so for the code design to be designed around Python values and Rust values is really great. Things like ergonomics drive a lot of the design decisions. Developer joy is a word that we use a lot internally. And when we're trying to make decisions, essentially, does this drive developer joy? Then why are we doing it? And sometimes the answer is because there's darn good other reasons to do it. But it gives us a guiding light for thinking about things, about, you know, are we doing things that make people happy about doing their job? How can we make it easier and happier to do the build, which frankly is a boring part of the job. For a lot of people, it involves sitting there, staring at the screen, getting more and more annoyed. So anything you can do to bring joy to a build is definitely adding value to someone's day. And when you can make it go faster, you're allowing them to actually stay, for instance, in that same mental space as when they hit save. When you have that latency of like 15 minutes of just waiting, it's so easy to, to lose where you were when you had to run the test suite and just wait and wait. It's so frustrating when you just can't maintain the flow. So being able to have things move along expeditiously, being able to have that be something that's a really pleasant experience is a high priority for us. And part of that came out of making choices about languages because these are things that those language communities themselves care about is what is the experience of the human? So as far as bias, I do want to agree with you. I think 
again, it's about who's ever present in your community is subtly biases how you start trying to serve their expression of, of interests and values and priorities. And so, for instance, the fact that for much of the first year of Pants 2, it was focused solely on Python meant that a lot of decisions were driven by what does the Python community care about? What do our individual Python users care about? And now that we've been adding support for other languages, that's changed some design decisions, that's changed some community decisions in ways that are really wonderful and healthy, but it does expose those ways in which we've subtly biased things already boxed ourselves in a little bit just by choosing to support one thing first rather than say, have to confront, how do we support 10 languages right out of the box? That would have certainly driven a whole different set of decisions for a company of our size that was never going to be viable to do. So those decisions were made for good reasons, but absolutely whatever language you choose to support is going to have a knock-on effect on who exists in your community and what kind of values they carry into the room with them. And their expectations of how to interact with their fellow human beings is definitely ported in from their favorite language community. We see that so strongly. And it's one of the reasons why I love the Python community, especially, is because they've always had from the top down really strong expectations of you treat people kindly, you treat people thoughtfully, you try to be inclusive, you make the best effort to be a healthy community that is welcoming to everyone except jerks. Those are never welcome. That's a lot of amazing features and elements of the culture that's been built just by leveraging the Python and the Rust models, not just technologically, but as a value space, as a brand and as a magnet to build community with. I am kind of curious to know, because the community has continued to grow and you've already moved into multiple iterations with Pants 2. As you're making those moves and as we're growing, what have you been doing to kind of decide what aspects of that culture are really working for the lurkers and the silent majority and everything in order to keep it when stakeholders choose to make decisions? And how do you make the decision between what to keep in the culture and what to let go? Wow, that is such a great question. We haven't confronted that one in a big way. A lot of the culture already had, like I said, developed already and was pretty firmly placed. In fact, my harder challenges are making changes to community culture because there's a lot of every single person who's there is invested in some way with how things already are. And so undo is much harder than add. One of those examples was, and this isn't quite undo, but I advocated very strongly for adding a welcome channel to the Slack. And initially this was met with a lot of trepidation, a lot of fear of this could be alienating. People might feel that this is really confrontational to be asked to like introduce themselves and talk about themselves. And one person basically said like, if I walked into a Slack that did that, I would walk straight out. I wouldn't answer. I would leave. And so it was it actually a pretty impassioned discussion. And it took months for me to win the day on that one. And hands down, my favorite thing in the entire community is our welcome channel. It is vibrant. I learned so much. It's where I get to not just learn the first couple of things about people, but also start forging a relationship with them. That first interaction and those first impressions are so important 
And our maintainers have started to really get into it as well because they are also building those relationships and starting to see how fun that is. Aside from how useful it is, that it's genuinely pleasurable to get to know people. And I think, you know, in a time of pandemic and lack of one-on-one true interactions, it's kind of easy to forget that. And something like the welcome channel is just this refreshing reminder every day of like, ah, neat new person I get to know. This is so cool. I love that part of my day. But it's also a wealth of information. I mean, there are so many users that we don't know about and companies that have been using pants for a long time. And the first time we find out is through that welcome channel because it's not commercial software. You don't need a license. You don't need permission. You don't have to register. There's nothing, there's no point where you have to report to us that you're using it before you're allowed to use it. So we constantly get just lovely surprises in that way about, oh, what are you doing with pants? Oh, that's a fascinating industry that is, as it turns out, using it. Oh, that's a fascinating use case. Can you tell us more about that? As a matter of fact, that problem that you came here to solve, we have been working on that just this week. Could you take a look at this PR and add your thoughts to it? So it's an opportunity where that person probably did not look through hundreds of open poll requests, nor should they need to. But just by getting to know them right off the bat, we're able to immediately direct them towards resources that are really relevant to what they need. And it's just really exciting to be able to do that kind of feedback. Yeah. And kind of hearkening back to that same conversation that we had about qualitative data and having to talk to a lot of people and behaviors that are being measured by stakeholders does not necessarily represent a large majority of individuals who might be going missing. I've personally found that welcome channels are a really great way to get those newcomers into that area of being comfortable enough to self-disclose. Have you considered using that welcome channel for purposes of direct measurements? Are you doing qualitative analysis on that channel? So I am not doing qualitative analysis, but I am doing quantitative work on it. So this is where we get into some of the stuff that York was talking about earlier, our original conversation. So we use Savannah CRM for community CRM. And the developer of that, Michael Hall, has been just wonderfully receptive to every request that I've made. I think there's only one where he's been like, eh, it's not kind of a priority for us. But for the most part, every time I've identified something that would be useful for us, he's like, oh, great idea. And within days, he's added that feature. And one of those was I had been copying people's welcome channel responses into their profile in Savannah. And I asked him, is there any way, you know, like what I do is I hit save and then periodically I just make a task for myself of having to go in and do all the copy pasting. And it's kind of tedious. Is there anything you could do to, to streamline that? And he looked into the API and he came up with something for me. So now Savannah has an integration that allows me to immediately pop those messages in as well as anything else I find in Slack. So when people give an insight into the way that they're using pants, maybe they talk about, oh, we've been really having some problems with our particular CI, blah, blah, blah. It's not necessarily they're asking tech support, but they're just adding some information about context about how they use it. That's something that at some point we might want to be reminding ourselves about. You know, it may in some future conversation, looking at the notes go, oh, as I see you use that for your CI. Oh, you're on GitLab. Oh, okay. Hang on. I think I know what this might be. So being able to track that, we use partly for engineering and partly for DevRel. But 
primarily for DevRel. And that's certainly why I'm gathering that information is because I just want to understand them better. And part of understanding them better is really understanding what problems are you dealing with? So every time they're bringing up their sort of big picture, what they deal with stuff, I'm dropping that in so that I can start to get a a broader understanding of like what matters to you. So I'm really happy when you mention qualitative and quantitative. And when we look at most communities by design or by accident, quantitative is the answer, which in terms of empirical research is a mystic. It's like looking at one side of the coin or one side of the story and you want to represent everybody. Again, brings us to the kind of bias. I just want to come in into your community by looking into what other ecosystems or communities have been doing. Of recent, I conducted a research with one uh, with Microsoft and I found a credible community. And one thing I realized is that they have a special team for research that looks into things objectively. I don't know if this is something that your community might be the size or we just, let's just talk abstractly. If there is a research division in your team that has to look into things, both qualitatively and quantitatively, what kind of value do you think qualitative findings or qualitative evidence will challenge or will support the quantitative numbers that you have? What are those type of things that uh, you think qualitative will bring in? For example, the easiest way to represent quantitative is statistics. 90% of the time this is happening. What about that 10%? Do people ask why are these 10% doing what they are doing? Would they just say majority wins the vote? 90% is moving this direction. For example, concrete example might be you have a developer's team and engineers or your productivity is above 98%. Well, let's say 90%. Does that mean success to you? Do you care about these 10% of things that might be the future of the company or your community? Or you just close the book with those quantitative numbers, those statistics? I would say, first of all, that just as a larger picture, we're still hungry enough that there's no, we don't care about that user. Unless there was some individual who was behaving poorly, we would not care about them. But as far as in the abstract, we make strategic choices all the time about what's our higher priority of these things, knowing that we have limited resources, especially of time. There's only so much we can do in any given moment. But we're very reluctant to say we are not interested at all in that type of user, essentially. A lot of it comes down to what is the community asking for? So we take a lot of pride in being responsive, for instance, in tech support. And this is some of the qualitative stuff that Savannah gives us. The average response time in Slack and GitHub is under 10 minutes. This is over a 10-year period. That's the sustained record of being very quick to respond. And it's something a lot of our users comment on. And that's something where I don't think the number is important. I think what matters is the experience, the fact that people come away saying to themselves, this is an open source project that actually reads, for instance, issues. They actually respond to my pull requests and give useful feedback and code review. 
they actually accept pull requests in the first place. When I have a question, they don't blame it on me or say, sorry, can't reproduce. They actually try to work with me on it. So I think the numbers give you something and we do care about them. But for me, it's always what's the narrative behind it? And much more importantly, what's the individual experience behind it? What's the developer experience behind it? This is developer relations. What is the relationship that we're building with these people? It should be a relationship in which they trust us to be on their side, trying to do our best for them, even if we don't always succeed, that they know that we care about their concerns and they believe that when things go wrong, it is without intent to dismiss them, that it wasn't a conscious decision of you don't matter enough for us. You're not enough, you know, not a big enough use case, for instance, you don't have the market value for us or your business model isn't aligned with ours, whatever. Those are things that honestly, lots of people have those experiences with various open source projects. We know those experiences. We've individually had those experiences And we set out very hard to create a different experience as an open source project and a one that gets remarked on a lot. So we look at a lot of numbers, but at the end of the day, I always try to bring it back to the people and what is the experience and how do we make sure that we're actually hearing people? I think the question earlier about the silent majority, I mean, it's hard to know whether they're a majority or not, obviously, because they're silent, but That's always really hard. How do you meet the needs of people who aren't speaking up? And so what I really try to do is make sure people know we genuinely want to hear from you. I can't do anything about the people who are silent, but every single time there's someone new, I let them know all over again. We really want to hear questions. We really want to hear suggestions. Please do make changes directly to the docs, et cetera, because it's so easy to, to sort of be led around by the nose, by the numbers and lose sight of the numbers don't necessarily represent what the experience of using your software or dealing with your community is like. And and so you have to have a balance. You have to be looking at both and be asking questions of both if you really want to build a community. I mean, we're setting out very intentionally to build a certain kind of community, right? Like a community that is thoughtful and responsive. You can set out to build a different open source community. There's nothing wrong with building centered on one company's agenda that's made some incredible projects. Kubernetes is a fantastic example of that. But for the agenda that we're working, this is the way to get there. So this is a fantastic conversation. And in the chat, uh, the listeners can't see it, but we've been chatting. Oh, we want to ask this one to talk about this still. So We would like to do a part two and close here for today. Karina, for someone who got curious and interested and would like to follow your work, where can they find you online? To follow my work, Pants Build on Twitter is probably the best place. Please do come to the Slack, even if you're not particularly interested in Pants right now. If you're curious about it, come just so, you know, we can have that conversation about what it is you care about and what your needs are, because the way Pants gets to serve you is by hearing from you. It's exactly what we're talking about. So if your needs are not yet met, let's have that conversation. And then as far as me personally, the best place to find me is on Twitter at CCZona. I have all sorts of opinions and also you get to hear about my puppy. So two reasons to come and follow me. 
Yeah, I'll definitely be doing that. And to all of our listeners, down below in the show notes, you'll also see several links that go straight to those resources. Yeah. And then when we resume with part two, the question that I want to ask next time is, as the DevRel person for the community, you're reporting to many different stakeholders. And what are the data points that you're looking at? What are the tools you're using to satisfy the different data needs for that you, you have? So just yeah. as a teaser and to start thinking about for next time. Okay. And to close out, we always like to end our episodes with value ads, where we share something that has brought value, joy, or meaning to our life recently. And I'll start us off. I got a new teapot. My old one broke. And this one, I, I was like, yay, I can finally get one that has a handle that doesn't slip when my hands are slippery. The lid is designed so any condensating water drips into the pot, not out on the outside, and then gets everything wet. The spout or where the tea comes out is designed to catch any floating particles from tea. So I get more clean drinking experience. I just love the new teapot. It's, it's fantastic. And sometimes it's the simple things that we treat ourselves with that make life more enjoyable. Yeah. And Mani, I got to say, over the course of the past bit, I've been having a rough go at a lot of mental health stuff and things going on. But recently, I ended up getting a therapist that is okay with being online. And as an online community manager, I cannot stress the resources that are out there. It's definitely no different. So if anyone is feeling like you're having a rough go at it, no matter how severe or how seldom, Definitely do look into a lot of the brand new resources and opportunities that have come out of the past year. Yeah. So for the first time after the COVID crisis, we will be meeting in person. And this time it's in Berlin, Germany. So I'm really excited to go. It's for the Open Infrastructure Summit. So I was selected as the chair for the AI and machine learning track. So it's really interesting to meet in person once more. Congratulations, Armstrong. That's really exciting. That's also one of my favorite cities. That's wonderful. Congratulations. The aforementioned puppy has been bringing just unbelievable amounts of light in my life. I too had been really struggling with the pandemic. The isolation is not at all healthy, as we all know. And I'm a first time dog owner and every single day is both terrifying with all the things that I didn't know I don't know and just filled with the joy of her sweet personality and her incredibly ridiculous things that she does, including chewing up the first pair of headphones that we tried to use for this interview. It's one of the top 10 best decisions I've made in my life. And I made it in the past couple of months. She's super cute. A dog is also in my future. I'm currently getting allergy shots so that we can get a dog in our family. Oh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, it is time to say thank you. Thank you, Karina, for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to the second half of our conversation. Yeah, me too. And thank you, Vinya and Armstrong for being panelists today. Thank you so much, Karina. Thank you, Gil. Yeah, super happy to be here as always. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. 
share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And if you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.